morning, church. My name is Kat, and I have been attending Reality for almost 13 years. Um, and I lead the foster care team and community here. Um, today's text is from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 15. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The, crowd, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money charger, changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind, the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. This is God's word. My name is Mike, and uh, it's, it's great to be with you and great to see you. I've got a, a nine-month-old girl at home and a three-year-old boy. And uh, in my efforts to be a Christian parent, I pray with my three-year-old boy almost every night. Um, partially because I'm like a really godly Christian parent, but also <laughs> mostly, not most, but also because I pray these like long, really mellow prayers while I rub his back to get him to go to sleep. You know, it's always like, dear God, you know, <laughs> thank you for this. And it calms down, he can go to sleep. And about three months ago, after doing this sort of, you know, night in and night out, I said, Soren, that's his name. Soren, um, do you want to pray to God? You could pray to God too. And he's like, yeah. And he said, um, God, I pray that I wouldn't get scared of the bears in my bedroom. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, wait, there's bears in your bedroom? What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, like when you leave, there's bears all over the place. It's very scary. <laughs> that's what he said. <laughs> I was like, no, there's no, are they make-believe bears? He goes, no, they're bears. He said, um, and God, make me stronger than the bears. And, uh, and I said, okay, amen, amen. And I was thinking in my head, like, genetics, like, strength is not going to be your thing, you know? It's like, maybe skinny could be your thing. How about that? He goes, make me stronger than a bear. So every single night since then, literally three months ago, every single night I pray with him. I lay him down. I say, let's pray. And he looks at me and he goes, stronger than a bear. Pray it. 
And in the middle of my prayer, if I pray for anything, I pray that my son would be a Christian. I pray that this little guy would have a good night's sleep. He'd have a good time tomorrow. Uh, he'll say, stronger than a bear, say the words. He wants to be strong. He wants to be super duper strong, stronger than a bear. And, uh, you know, it's a microcosm of the, the problem of human frailty, right? Like we want to be strong people. And, and I think San Francisco, um, even in like the Christian life, we want to be seen as savvy people, um, important people, capable, efficient. I wonder if, for instance, you did an audit of your life and you just like tried to pay attention and jot down every comment that you made that in the end was geared towards looking important, powerful, savvy, capable, how long that list would be. I wonder if you made a list like in a given week on all the things that you bought to feel like you have control over the circumstances of life. So it gave you a sense of peace and calm because you're strong, like stronger than a bear, stronger than life. I wonder how long that list would go. If, um, if John Calvin says that the, the human heart is an idle factory, I think many of us are like pumping out that particular inordinate desire for control and strength. We want to be strong. We read a passage here in Matthew 21 where Jesus is paradoxical, countercultural, confrontational, but he's leading, riding a donkey into a city to his death because some of us know the rest of the story here. He's not being strong, not in the conventional sense. And so we're meant to ask the question, what, what goes on with God's economy and God's plan through scripture and in, for, and in our lives with strength? I think we'd see that one paradoxical and countercultural thing about the Christian life is that God's work is often preceded by great weakness, not by great strength of will or great resolution, that if you want God to work in your life, you want to see something powerful from God, it's oftentimes in scripture and in our lives preceded by a sense of submission, powerlessness, and weakness. I used to do a Bible study um, in a, a recovery home, and I, I uh, tried my best to be, like, be a good Bible study leader for people in recovery, um, you know, alcoholics and, and people who are uh, addicted to drugs. And I did my best, but I, I feel like I learned more than I taught in that Bible study. But the thing that, the conversation between these different people would happen every single week where someone would come with a comment that was about self-actualization, self-strength, self-realization, what I've got inside of me that will make me good, yada, yada. And uh, inevitably, somebody else in the Bible study would say, that's your addict brain talking. Like, if you just followed your heart, you, you know where it got you. You followed your heart and it led you to the, to the bottom. And so inevitably, invariably, the conversation would go, you need something bigger to follow. You need something stronger. You need something uh, altogether different than just following yourself to make you strong. In fact, the first step of the 12 steps is that you have to admit that you're powerless to drugs and alcohol. Oftentimes, great weakness actually precedes strength in the way God works. Another example by way of introduction, George Whitfield was a, a well-known UK pastor in the 1700s in London and the areas outside of London. And at that time, many people were not going to church, specifically the working class and the poor and marginalized, overlooked towns, overlooked um, people groups, and they weren't able to go to church because they had to work so much and they had very hard lives. They had made for a very irreligious group of people who were very working class and, uh, and marginalized. And so George Whitfield was actually, some of the churches were empty, but he was kicked out of preaching from some of the churches. And so he decided to go ride out into the towns of these people who had been overlooked by the church and had not been to church in a long time. And one day he rode to this little 
outskirt town called Kingswood where he um, sought to preach the gospel of Jesus to the Kingswood Colliers, the Kingswood coal miners. And so for the day, he goes around to all these little town of mostly kids who don't go to school during the day and these working class people. And he says, when the coal miners come out of the, the mines for the day, I'd like to sort of set up a dusty outside church and I'd like to preach the gospel if you guys want to be a part of it. And so on one day, about 200 people gathered together. And just as he said, he rides his horse up to this area and the men come out of the coal mines. And mind you, people warned George Whitfield not to go preach to these people because the, the joke sort of was like, they're gonna laugh at you because they're an unruly bunch of people and they'll probably mug you. Something people say about San Francisco, actually, now I think of it, like, don't go preach there, you'll probably get mugged, probably gonna laugh at you. And so he, he goes out, he preaches to the coal miners, covered in soot, covered in dust, um, and weary from a long day in the, in the coal mines. And so he preaches a, the gospel of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' sermon where he says, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. The meek, meek, a synonym for meek would be gentle. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And as he goes on about halfway through the sermon, George Whitfield later records in his journal that he began in his mind to see a miracle because all of a sudden, like streaks of clean white like glowing light were coming from the cheeks of some of these men. One after another, after George Whitfield sort of drives into their minds, and it's probably the spirit of God how I think of it, that, that God has a heart for the gentle. That, that God's a gentle God. And if you don't feel like you have God, then you might actually be poor in spirit and therefore God seeks to bless you. So as he preached the gospel, the men were crying and it was washing the coal off of their faces, smearing it off one by one, these different groups of, these uh, different hardened men, men who are known for being very irreligious, were responding to Jesus. Um, oftentimes, a, a great display of weakness is what like, precipitates a great work of God. And so what happened from this random coal mine and a few other places around the West, there was a, a, a social renewal and a spiritual revival that started in the 1700s called the Great Awakening. And in that Kingswood coal mine, um, suddenly a lot of these guys got saved. And then all of a sudden, after a lot of these coal miners got saved, uh, tools started appearing at the coal mine. What happened was like these guys got saved and they brought back the tools that they had stolen. Uh, <laughs> they brought, brought them back to work and were like, I found this shovel in my backyard. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> And then um, the coal mine became more productive and, and safer because of the attentive nature of the men and their heart change. And then a school suddenly popped up in Kingswood where there was no school to educate the, the, the kids of this working class neighborhood. Social renewal, spiritual revival, but it was, it was preceded by not strength of will, not tyranny of will, not a desire to say, I'll finally clean my life up, but by just the tears of desperate people and God went to work. And the point is that um, when we see the triumphal entries, not a very triumphal entries on a donkey after all, and, but people crying out to Jesus saying, Hosanna, save us. Like what, what precedes the Holy Week is a bunch of people laying down their cloaks and their branches in symbolic nature, which I'll talk to you in a second about, and saying, we're desperate. We need saving, we need help. So Palm Sunday encourages us to, to do meditation and reflection on what I think is the heart of this passage of scripture in verse five. 
See, your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey. And actually, for the morning, I'd like to just like break these things up and meditate and sort of reflect and just sit with each part of this sentence. First, see, what is Jesus trying to show us here? Secondly, your king, what kind of king is Jesus trying to be in the world and in your life? Thirdly, gentle. And lastly, that he comes to you. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. Well, the interesting thing about this passage is that Jesus is trying to assert himself on a few different groups of people. Um, On his followers who are still sort of misconstruing the situation with Jesus, what kind of king he is and what kind of salvation he comes to bring. Um, He's trying to assert himself on the crowds who are following him, who have an assumption about himself. And then on the religious center of life in the world in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is asserting himself on these people and he's creating a crisis to do so. Like if you look in verse one, it says they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And if you look back in chapter 20, something like like a pivotal moment happened in chapter 20 that's also reflected in this passage. It was the first time that people called Jesus the promised Messiah, ultimate king, ruler, Lord, capital G, God, it was the first time he was called that publicly and that he just said, yeah, yeah, that's me. So in Matthew 20, they're walking along, described in verse one here, and um, on that path, two blind men cry out to Jesus. Everyone else says, can you guys keep it down a little bit? We're trying to walk here. And then uh, they just keep crying out. Jesus, son of David, save us. And son of David is sort of the technical term for the Messiah, the king, ultimate king. And he responds to them publicly and says yes. And then he heals these men. And then we get to Jerusalem and these people are saying, Hosanna, which means save us, the God who saves. And he accepts that. And then he goes into the temple. And then um, he's later called son of God, son of David again. This is a pivotal moment because every other time in the life of the followers of Jesus, um, every time like the truth would break out about Jesus, like somebody would get healed or something would get taught that was profound and people would say, I think this guy's like the guy. And then he would say, just shush. A lot of shushing (laughs) earlier in Jesus's ministry, just saying, keep it to yourself. Go, um, you know, go and sin no more. Go, you go do this and keep it quiet. But now it's going public and it's going public on the walk to Jerusalem. And Jesus is clearly orchestrating and preparing the way at this inflection point. Like six of the verses in our passage are describing Jesus arranging his triumphal entry sort of divinely and I guess you could say humanly, like like strategically as well as miraculously. Take a look in verse two. It says, Jesus told them, go to the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt. So we got a donkey and a colt untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. Do you understand what's going here? Like it's not entirely grand theft donkey, but it is kind of also that. Like he's saying, just go steal the donkey and the colt. And like there's someone's gonna probably ask you, uh, why are you stealing my stuff? And they'd be like, it's for Jesus. And, G- and Jesus knows this almost in a divine sense that that's gonna happen. He's arranging it for a crisis that he's creating at the front of this city entering into Jerusalem. 
And what Jesus knows is that he raised Lazarus from the dead and spent lots of time in Bethany and Bethpage, these two nearby towns to Jerusalem. And the people in those towns were the, the secret keepers. They had been sort of holding this truth dearly in, within their communities that he might be the Messiah. He might be the king. And so when the donkeys are being untied and then someone does say, why are you taking my stuff? Then um, they say it's for Jesus that they're gonna go, I think I remember reading in Zechariah 9.9 that the savior would come on a donkey coming to us. And so enough people had like light, like Holy Spirit inspired light bulbs that are going on remembering their Bible that when we get later into the passage, we see that the crowds came from Bethany and Bethpage. Like it says in verse eight, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees. Side note, Luke tells us that they were palm branches, but it doesn't say it in Matthew. But you know, it makes sense because like if you're trying to lay a branch in front of Jesus, but you brought like a eucalyptus, or like some big tall thing, you know what I mean? Like, it's not helpful. You're like, I'm Jesus, Hosanna, I brought you a branch. And it's like, you know, <laughs> it's gotta be a flat branch. It makes sense that it's palm branches. Okay, the logistics here is very important logistics regarding this passage. Okay, verse nine. So the crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, son of David. So there's, a people, there's people ahead of Jesus and there's people catching up to Jesus. And then you get into Jerusalem and the question from the people in Jerusalem is, who is this guy? So that means the people that were outside of the city, the picture is being painted here, that the people outside of the city were from Bethany and Bethpage. Jesus is orchestrating the crisis. He's saying, go do this thing. You go over here. I got my little divine donkey that's gonna come over here so that there is a crowd of people saying to me, Hosanna, son of David, save us in front of the gates of this evil empire where I will one day, where I will eventually die. He's forcing on this city his kingship. He's forcing the agenda. But one thing that it means is that Jesus is in total control in this situation. Like he's saying, I'm not a victim of circumstances. I'm not a victim of fate. It's similar to what he says in John 10 when, when Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. This is a very important point from Jesus. He's saying, you have to understand, like no one's taking my life from me. Don't take that away from me, that this act of love and sacrifice that I'm going to is very much my choice and my will. He's in total control and he's orchestrating this event to display that he is the second thing that we're gonna reflect on today, that he's king, that he is your king. One commentator on the book of Matthew wrote, notice Jesus is incredibly humble but never modest. You notice that about Jesus? Like he's incredibly humble to all sorts of subjugated groups. He's always got the right thing to say to love and care for people who are hurting. He's never modest. He's never modest about himself. He receives worship. He forgives sins. The only thing that only God can do that kind of thing. Jesus is incredibly meek and gentle and wonderful, but he's, he, he holds both gentleness and divinity and kingship. Like if you look at the source material that we have for Jesus of Nazareth, always kind, but never shy about his role as the son of God and king. And what that means is that he's a relational, he's a confrontational king because he's a relational king. Like kingship is confrontational. He's ruling, he's reigning, he's judging. His truth is the truth. Like he's Lord, okay? 
and, and he's gentle. He doesn't let go of those two things. He is conf- he's, he's um, forcing himself on this city and creating a scene so that everyone in the city, if they were willing to see who Jesus really is, would be confronted with this fact that you have to crown me or you have to kill me. There's no middle ground. Like there's no, there's no intellectually honest middle. There's no emotionally honest middle. Like if you're actually gonna see me for who I am, Jesus is saying, if you have eyes to see, ears to hear, like a heart to understand, then you have to either like see that I'm Lord and, and destroy this or submit to it. But Jesus in a sense is saying, I refuse to be liked. I refuse to be made in your image. You know, there's something very dehumanizing. There's a lot of talk about identity in our culture these days, about how people identify and how people identify themselves. And so the intersections of different parts of our identity as we, uh, uh, as we interact with different people in our lives. But I think the, the belief from a lot of people, and it, it feels this way, is it's very dehumanizing for someone to say, I don't really want to accept you the way you are presenting yourself. I want to like, sort of attach my identity to you. There's something very dehumanizing when we say, um, I prefer not to see you as you present you, but I prefer to sort of like identify you myself. I think the challenge though is that like we do that to God all the time. Like we insist in our culture that people respect our identity. And then we talk about God and we go, you know the way I like to think about God? And um, Jesus is a confrontational king because he's a relational king. He insists on being actually known. And we treat God as like an impersonal force, but the thing that we know about God, if, if, if the Bible's true, if these uh, source documents are true about the way we piece together our knowledge of God, then he's a relational God who insists on being known and he's not an impersonal force. That means God has a persona and a personality, if you could say that. And he's knowable. And he's, in Jesus, he's like seeable and touchable and killable. He's low and he's knowable. And that means that because he has a persona, we, we can't make him in our image. Um, one of the main objections to Christianity from Sigmund Freud was that um, Christianity is all just wish fulfillment which is like we just project our desires on God and that the, the myth of Jesus is just us wishing that there is a God and wishing that that God would be merciful and loving and kind and understand, give me identity, give me mercy, love and all that. That it's just wish fulfillment specifically for the purpose of making God in our image. And I think that that does happen. Like, like Freud's not totally wrong on that. We do that to God. Like all of us bring our cultural norms to our relationship with God and we say, hey, I kind of like God if he's more like this or that. Like we do that. Freud's not way off. I don't know that you can deconstruct the whole Jesus thing with that. I think that's the, the shortcoming of it. But we do it. We make God in our image and Jesus is saying, I know it's confrontational. I know it's gonna be hard for you. But I'm king and you have to make a choice. He's a confrontational king because he's a relational king. This is a total tangent, speaking on identity. Total tangent. Can you have 30 seconds for a tangent? Okay. I have a microphone, you don't. So it's like, that's how it works. So um, the thing about identity that's crazy is like, there's a very disorienting and painful part of becoming a Christian with our identity because we live in the expressive individualistic age where we look inside ourselves for our, our identity markers and the number one like, like secular religious belief is don't let anyone challenge your, your expression of your personal identity. And I just wanna like say out loud, it is a painful process. Um, maybe even specifically for 
our kind of people, that when you become a Christian, Jesus brings his authority to your identity. And he says like, oh, those three things? Yeah, more of those. Those are beautiful. These other three things you think about yourself, those are actually lies. And like, I'm gonna give you three other things about your identity you've never even thought about before, but that are gonna be like a source for hope and joy and empowerment that you would have never had if you didn't have me. But it is a disorienting feeling to feel like you step into Christianity, some of you like me, like sort of like baby step into calling yourself a Christian. And then all of a sudden God's doing crazy work by saying like, you know, you need to, you need to end that. And you need more of this and you need to th- dwell deeper on this thing. And I'm gonna call you a son. I'm gonna call you a daughter. I'm gonna call you an heir. I'm gonna give you a hope for eternity. But I just wanna like acknowledge that it is a disorienting thing and where it is dehumanizing for us to say, I don't accept your identity. I like to call you this or that. Jesus is the only one who has that authority over us and, and does good work by bringing us a new identity. Okay, tangent over. Third point, that see, your king comes to you, this is something beautiful, gentle, gentle and riding on a donkey. Jesus has gone to all this effort to assert himself on us, confronting Jerusalem, confronting the world through scripture, confronting all of us about his kingship. What kind of king is he presenting us with? A gentle donkey king. <laughs> That's that weird, like a king who rides donkeys. It's subversive and paradoxical, and it's meant for us to think and meditate. What kind of king rides a donkey? Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. The byline is the heart, for Christ for, the, heart, the heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And he writes, it's the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. Like Jesus loves weak people. He's a paradoxical upside-down king with a paradoxical upside-down, counterintuitive, subversive kingship and kingdom. What's so subversive about Jesus? It's the donkey. Like, imagine you're the disciples. You know he's like calm the storms powerful. And you're riding, you're, you're walking into Jerusalem and you're like, this is our moment. We're finally going public with his kingship. And I, it's not in the Bible, but I still know it's true that like at least one of them had a boombox and like the walk-up music was like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like a grab it and bring it back kind of walk. You know what I mean? Like, it was that, like, this is finally happening. And then, and then Jesus is like, get me my donkey. What kind of person, what kind of king rides a donkey? It's a servant, like in the culture, it's a servant. What kind of, what kind of king rides into war on a donkey? One who is about to get slaughtered. That's the message. It's not the first time that God's people from the rest of scripture have seen God's subversive paradoxical uh, kingship. Like what's quoted here is from Zechariah 9.9. Let's expand Zechariah 9.9 for our understanding to, to see God's heart. It says Zechariah 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will, this is the crazy part. I'll take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses of Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Now, I don't, I don't know like wherever you stand with Jesus and, 
and submitting your life to Jesus and believing in the God of the Bible. But like, that's pretty beautiful. I think that a lot of us in our striving in the world want this. Like, is there a good king out there who breaks the battle bow, ends the cycle of oppression, ends the cycle of violence and tribalism and division? Like, however this comes to pass, Zechariah 9 is kind of a beautiful image of what all of our hearts long for. And here I'm thinking, you know, of the children who were shot, the children and school workers who were shot this week at a um, Christian school in Nashville. And I'm thinking of the last time some Christian children, might not have been the last time, but some of the time, other Christian children were shot in like a Amish commune in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And the response from Christians, my buddy's church is hosting the, the um, funeral for some of the kids from this week. And then the Amish people who by every measure are like the most extreme Christians <laughs> that you've ever met. They're the most fundamentalist Christians ever. And like they take all this stuff so hardcore and that Christian belief led them, those Amish folks to, to forgive and, and care for and offer like resources to the families of the shooters. There's something about God's kingship and his gentleness that like produces a kind of peacemaking that I think is beautiful. Um, Whatever you believe about Jesus, I want a king. I want a king that's virtuous, that breaks the battle bow and brings peace to the nations. And that's the claim about Jesus. The point is that we have to hold both of these things to have, things to have that resource. That's sort of what goes on with um, Christian belief as it works out in the life of a Christian. That he's a king. Judging, authoritative, Truth-speaking, declaring, gentle, low, approachable, and loving. If you miss one of those things, I think you miss something powerful about our God. I'll give you an example. So uh, we talked about Freud. Let's talk about Friedrich, other famous atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche. His, um, his famous um, objection to Christianity was that the world should be led by the ubermensch, the world should be led by these cultural elites that rise to the top in society who become smart enough and powerful enough and they have the, the beautiful art and these ubermensch should like run things in the world and the Christian myth can really be deconstructed down to the poor making up a God that gives them power to, to battle with the ubermensch. Like Christianity is really just, if you break it down, a mythos that helps the poor to feel like their lives have meaning so that they can gain something on the powerful. Weirdly and paradoxically, Karl Marx, atheist, also said a similar type of argument except for he was saying that all Christianity really is is people claiming to know God, people claiming to have the truth about God, and the powerful using that truth to subjugate the proletariat, to subjugate the working class. So Marx says, God stuff is really just keep the powerful, powerful. And Nietzsche was, is saying, it's really just the poor trying to rise up. Um, one says Jesus is sort of a king that, that creates other kings. One says that Jesus is gentle, whatever. They can't both be right. That's the point I'm trying to make. Also, it's crazy because it's like, okay, Freud is like, um, um, Freud's like, all religious claims are wish fulfillment except for my claim. Don't, you know, that's not wish fulfillment. My claim is the one non-wish fulfillment thing. Marx is like, all claims about God are power plays. 
but not this plane. This is the one good one. The rest of y'all's are power plays. Nietzsche, same thing, counterintuitive. Um, uh, 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 circular logic, I think is what they call it. He's gentle and he's a king. And um, I want to expose you to a Christian theologian called Mears, named Mirzlov Wolf. He's a professor at Yale or was a professor at Yale. And he's from the Eastern Bloc. And he wrote in the 90s um, about exclusion and embrace. That's the title of, of his most famous book. And he's writing from a culture that had these cycles of violence where because they took vengeance upon themselves, um, where it was just tribalism and a cycle of violence where these people were killing themselves over and over again, retribution over retribution over retribution in Yugoslavia and, uh, and uh, all these other Eastern Bloc areas. And Miroslav Wolf spoke at the, the UN in that time. And then he spoke a very similar talk in the days after 9-11 in New York with uh, political leaders there. And it's, I'd like to share a quote with you, but to frame it, he's saying, Jesus gives us great resource for peacemaking in a busted world. If you hold that he is king and capable of like real judgment, but is also gentle, lowly, forgiving, and loving. And if you lose either of those things, you lose your resource for peacemaking. Here's what he says. Mind you, this quote is at the end of his book, so it's a little bit of like a mic drop quote. So if this is like offensive to you, just apologies. It's, it's Wolf, not me. Okay. My thesis that the, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Uh, Wolf is saying that if you believe, even if it's hard to believe in a God who is king, who claims to have a truth bigger than our own or a, a, um, a judgment, but that you have actually been wrong, not that you live in the quiet of a suburban home where no one's really done injustice to you, but when deep bitterness grows deep inside your heart, as he describes in the final pages of his book uh, through his testimony, of brothers with their throats cut and mothers and sisters taken advantage of. That in that context, you've actually been, been uh, wrong so deeply you don't have words or response to it, except for a cycle of violence and retribution. That God as king who can do something about evil is good news. And it's the only recourse to giving up the gun, giving up the sword, giving up retribution. It's, in, in other words, it's like saying, um, only God can really judge and know when someone deserves a kind of judgment. And only God knows when they should be treated with gentleness and hurt people hurt people. And it's a part of a systemic issue that none of us can grasp um, the, the, the depths of. Only God has the ability to, um, to be king and the heart to be gentle in the same time. And so only he should be trusted with those things and that's the recourse to peacemaking. Even though Wolf says it may be an unpopular thing to Christians in the West, actually he says. 
And we want strong saviors in our culture, even if we see a savior that is weak in our passage. A book was written by a New York Times um, commentator recently called The Davos Man. The byline for the book is how billionaires devoured the world. And in the book, it just describes that in past ages, we used to sort of look to strong saviors that were radiant and beautiful and capable and creative to lead our culture. Like, it used to be the supermodel. It used to be the rock star. It used to be, you know, the scholar. But now it's the billionaire. The billionaire entrepreneur leads the way. And that on some level, a lot of us want to be strong, capable people who are so entrepreneurial and brilliant that we are hyper-capable to even save the world with our technology and stuff. But that we're also so rich that we're free from being canceled. We don't have to worry about resource problems. And so all these people just look to the billionaire class and are saying, if I could be saved if I'm like that, that they lead the way. And as Christian commentators sort of interact with um, the Davos, Davos is a place in Switzerland where all the rich people hang out. Did you know that? Okay, that's what I mean. Like all the world leaders hang out in Davos. They hang out in Bohemian Grove where that weird statue is of an owl where all the people worship an owl. In, this is right here in town. You guys don't know what Bohemian Grove is? Okay, you can look it up. Don't Google it now. Anyways, so weird, weird, weird place in the woods here and as well as in Davos, Switzerland. And that's where the, the billionaire class hangs out and plans what happens with society. And um, if you want to be like that, like the hyper-competent um, entrepreneur, Christians commenting on the book have noticed that that is like at the heart of our high-performance, high-exhaustion culture right now. Like a lot of us, we're, we're constantly thinking, how can I get more efficient how can I get more fast? How can I, get, how can I outsource this? Um, how can I be more? How can I be more capable? And I've, I wonder if our interpretation of the life of Jesus is also making that worse. Like I wonder if you take a religious mindset to that and say, I need to like keep this God plate spinning as well as this work plate spinning. If it might even be that Christians are the most anxious in a particular read on life with Jesus that we're meant to keep up righteousness in regards to God's grace. And so we want to be the entrepreneurs of our own life. But it's actually a very like difficult thing because it's tremendous pressure. For instance, the Jews wanted to overthrow Rome so they could be free. But in an individualistic culture where everyone follows their heart, when your life has problems, the only king that you can overthrow is yourself. Exhausting. That all it is, is we're not looking to other things because all we do is look inside of ourselves and when we see problems inside of ourselves, the only thing that we overthrow and do battle with and destroy are the other parts of us. It's an exhausting thing. We need gentle saviors. We need a gentle savior. On the cross, Jesus expresses like ultimate weakness because if you and I were killed by a political injustice, it would be a normal injustice, but like the God King coming down to being low. And then Philippians says, even death on a cross, like the lowest of low. That's how he's able to be gentle. That we have access to that kind of God through what he did on, for us on the cross. And if you want to be with Jesus, you have to get low too. Like you have to go low. You have to go gentle. You have to get on his level. And it requires great weakness. And if I'm just honest, honest, like I don't know if I ever, like I know I want to be a Christian, but I don't know if I want to get that low every day. And we need that. We need to know that you have to go to tears before you get a great awakening. 
Like we need to admit we're powerless before we can get clean. Um, we need to die before we get reborn. And so the path of God working powerfully in your life or maybe you've got this thing you sort of rolled into church with this morning and you're going like, this is like my pain point. This uh, breakup, this addiction, this, um, this failure. And you've got the pain point and you know that Jesus died and got low. You know that he's there with you in your lowness. And so we have to like submit ourselves to Jesus. And this is the great exchange of the Christian life. That when you submit yourself to him, he lifts you up. That's something we celebrate on Easter. And I just want to close with reading this, if that's you. The word gentle doesn't occur in the New Testament. Like this Greek word gentle doesn't occur that much in the New Testament. It happens in the Sermon on the Mount that George Whitfield preached to the coal miners. Blessed are the meek, gentle. And then it occurs in Matthew 21. And then elsewhere, it occurs in Matthew 11. I want to read it to you. Jesus says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My, my application for us, I think, this morning, my prayer for us as Christians is, will you get low and realize that Jesus came into this situation on a donkey, he came low so that he could be accessible to you. Like the reason why he went that low is so that he could be approachable to you, so that he can say to you, come, I'm here, and I can give you rest because I'm gentle. If you're praying to God this morning, pray weak prayers. Don't make resolutions. Don't make promises. Just make weak statements of our weakness and let God go to work. In community, throw off your need to defend yourself or posture yourself or to pray in a certain tone or certain words, but just to be honest about your brokenness. Um, maybe you do audit some of the decisions that you make in a week that make you strong and submit those to the Lord. Let's come to him low, for he's gentle. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a king with authority powerful over the world, but that you came low. I pray that we would be people of peacemaking as we hold both of those things, that we're forgiven, that you're with us, that you love us, and that you are our Lord and authority. I pray that you would open up our mind, our will, and our emotions to submit to you. It's in your name we pray, amen.